Welcome to week three. I hope you're surviving and thriving despite the crazy COVID-19 fire world that we're currently living in. So last week you learned about what crime is. And remember, it's really a social construct that we as a people have defined. And you got some exposure to what crime rates are. But this week I wanna take it a step back and start digging into how we come up with or measure the rates of crime that we discussed. I.e. kind of where does this crime data come from in the first place? So you probably heard me mention the Uniform Crime Reports, or you'll commonly hear me call them the UCR, last week multiple times, and you were probably like, hey lady, what the heck is this? I'm new to this whole advent of justice thing and need you to explain things. So here I am to hopefully do that. So where does crime data come from? We mainly use the UCR here, which um, will actually switch to a different type of collection called NIBRS, and that will come fully in 2021. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but this UCR kind of data is a centralized database that's run by the FBI that compiles reported crime data from nearly every one of the 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country. And I hope that you noted that I said, quote unquote, reported crime, because that is one of the flaws of this data as it only includes what was reported to the police. And estimates generally indicate that only about half of violent crime is reported and less than a third of property crime is reported. So know that this metric isn't necessarily fully complete. Um, additionally, the UCR uses a hierarchy rule, meaning that if someone was arrested for, say, um, the crimes of assault, kidnapping, and homicide, all in the context of one event, only the homicide would actually get captured in our data because that'd be the highest ranking of them. NIBRS should hopefully give um, better data on all kinds of metrics, but that one in particular will be much better recorded, hopefully. Um, another issue with the UCR is that there are no set standards for crime classifications across states. Most tend to be pretty generalizable, however, that's not necessarily always the case. So capturing this data into neat little categories is not always easy, and it can also distort the reality of the data. Lastly, the UCR measures reported crime for part one and part two offenses, but this is nowhere near exhaustive of crimes and really only tells us about violent and property crime because it really lacks information about, say, drug crime or really technological based crime either. However, it is still a good measurement of crime, and it's at least the best that we have in terms of reported based crime. And remember, it shows a downward trend that becomes important as we look at these other measures. So we also have um, and use the National Crime Victimization Survey to gauge how often people are victimized. And this one's called the NCVS. You'll hear me reference that frequently. And this is a measurement tool that has been administered in the U.S. since the um, early 1970s, typically via phone type of interviews. And each year, a sample of about a thousand households with about 160,000 to 200,000 individuals um, with respondents all of age 12 or older. Um, that sample at least is utilized throughout the U.S. to give us a nationally representative sample of individuals. We're not going to talk to every single one of the almost 330 million people in the United States to give us this information. We can use samples to glean the same information. And so the persons um, that are interviewed, they answer questions about the frequency and the characteristics and consequences of their personal criminal victimization. Um, so really, this is asking people to tell us how much they have been victimized. And what this data shows us is that not everyone reports crime to the police. Surprise, we already knew that from that UCR, but this is how we know that. Um, sometimes people are uncomfortable going to the police for certain types of crimes. So we know for certain things like um, sexual assault, domestic violence, we tend to have very low reporting. Um, some might not know that what happened to them was crime. 
So interestingly enough, there's actually a lot of quote unquote robbery that occurs in youth populations. Um, if you take something from someone else unlawfully by force or with threat of force, by definition, it's robbery. But I doubt that very many high schoolers are reporting when someone takes their lunch money. Um, and some downright don't like the police, or they don't think that the police are going to help them, so they just don't report. Especially if, say, you've been victimized in the past by some type of crime, and then you called the police and nothing really happened, and they didn't seem to help you, are you really going to call them for the second time something happens, the third time, the fourth, hand, fourth time? Um, but again, this measurement is useful because it gives us more information. And taken collectively, the NCVS data shows that same trend as the UCR data in that crime is going down. And the third rate way that we measure crime um, is used, and a way that we gauge kind of crime, are called self-report surveys. And these are mainly used actually in the high school type of environment. So you may have taken some of these back in probably 10th and 12th grade. And they ask you about your bad behaviors. Um, so this is the measurement that asks people to tell us about how much crime they have been involved in. One of the major ones is the Monitoring the Youth Survey. It's one of the most common, um, and it's been administered since about the 1970s. And so these types of surveys typically ask if you've ever taken something from someone else by force, again, robbery, stolen something from someone else, getting into theft, um, done drugs, drank alcohol, things like that, um, within the past 30 days. Now, the issue with self-report surveys is the issue of both under and over-reporting. And so while they're anonymous surveys, people don't have to tell us who they are. Some are still afraid to admit to their bad behavior, and sometimes some people want to seem cool in the over-report. However, this is still a useful piece of information because it gives us yet another measurement that we can use to better understand crime. And as you probably already guessed, it also shows a decrease in crime. Fun fact, drug usage in particular is particularly down. So all three of these measurements show us something a bit different and give us different perspectives on crime from official data, from victims telling us how often they've been victimized, and people telling us how often they have committed crimes themselves. And all of these show us that same type of trend. So it's that much more believable that it's true. And when all of the metrics follow the same trend, it's pretty eye-opening. So I've said it before and I'll say it again, but the trend for crime is down or a decrease. And there may be upticks occasionally in certain crime categories in certain locations. Many of you even found current events this past week about that, but it doesn't necessarily change the direction of the trend in a larger capacity. Okay, so you now know a bit more about measurements of crime. That's great. So then what do we do with this information? Um, one thing to note is that we have to be very, very careful. That's what we have to do. One thing we know is that we are notoriously bad at crime prediction. So please, please watch the Super Predators video this week. Um, even the top ranked criminologists in this country can run statistical equations correctly and we can still be dead wrong. In the 1990s, they thought crime was going to skyrocket. That was the expectation because based upon the data and the trends, it should have. However, it didn't. So why didn't it? There's no easy answer here. There's speculation, but it's likely so many confounding variables working together that we may never have a really good answer to this question. Um, for a long time, it looked like crime was uh, tied closely to the economy. However, then we had a really big recession in the late 2000s. So crime should have gone up, but guess what? It continued on its downward trend. There have also been pieces of research that have said that perhaps it was technological advances that have helped. Um, one thing here is as teenagers started playing video games, it kept them inside and gave them something to do other than being outside and up to no good. 
So perhaps technological advances have contributed to that decrease in crime. Youths don't need a lot of idle hand time. They need something to do, and maybe video games provided that. And there's also a controversial perspective that addresses the rise in legalized abortion um, as a potential contributing factor in that those who would have been born in the most criminogenic environments essentially never came to existence unless the crime went down. Again, highly controversial. Read more about that one in one of the articles I supplied this week. Others have also speculated that it's policing that matters. And while there is some connection or a correlation with the amount of police and that decrease in crime, actual policing styles are not actually associated with anything to do with that decrease, which is, tends to be a surprise for people. So the takeaway here is that we don't necessarily know and that we have to be very cautious with our data because we aren't good at prediction anyway. All right, so there's some further content in your slides this week that addresses crime patterns. I'm actually gonna come back to that when we talk about criminological theory in a few weeks because it'll make a lot of sense together and because today's content was a lot. So sit tight and we will talk about that in a few weeks. Until next time, y'all.